Thank you for getting up early one more time. Uh, we're actually, we're winding down. We're like two-thirds of the way through, three-quarters of the way through. Can you believe that? Um, if you did not get one of the handouts, you need to make sure that you get one of those before uh, Jacob is here later and teaches. Um, that's going to be a, a, a very good lesson. You're going to walk away with tons of homework to do. Um, that'll be really helpful. Um, so let's do this. Let's... Um, I want to walk you through the disciplines this morning, reviewing them a little bit. Think about the heart, the home, our ministry, qualifications, and the hermeneutic, the first five. So why don't we do this before we get going too much further. Let me pray, and then you guys can continue to do what you're, get some food and all that. But let me pray. Let's uh, commit our time to the Lord. Father, we do that this morning. Uh, that's our desire is we want to set you before us in this, that this would be a time of um, fellowship with you, worship of you, and it would be an expression of love for you, a desire to humble ourselves under you as we have your Bible open before us. So, Lord, please come and meet with us and guide our time and soften our hearts, Lord. We wake up at the, after sleeping, and even though we may not have been actively sinning or rebelling against you. Our hearts grow cold. They do not wake up um, a fire on fire for you. And so, Lord, we pray that even what we do this morning would warm our hearts towards you, would soften our hearts towards you, um, would increase our appetite for you in your word. And so, God, bless our time. We desperately need you to, so that we become the men that you desire us to be before you so that we become the husbands that you have called us to be the parents the husband the fathers that you've called us to be and then just the leaders in the church that you desire us to be and so god we commit our time to you and we ask you to bless it in jesus name amen all right i'm going to have you turn to some different passages this morning would you please turn to psalm 94 verse 19 just take you to a few different passages on each of the disciplines. We're talking about discipline one here, that you would shepherd your heart with the word of God so that you might know the God of the word better. Psalm 94, 19. I'll back up to verse 17. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have soon, uh, my soul would soon have dwelt in the abode of silence. If I should say my foot has slipped your loving kindness, O Lord, will hold me up. And in this one, when my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. There is um, a statement from the psalmist that he is shepherding his own soul. He's shepherding his own heart. When anxious thoughts multiply within him, I, I identify with that. I understand that. I, I'm prone to anxiety and worry. I think about all of the things that I could possibly worry about, and I choose to worry about those on my own. But when anxious thoughts rise up and multiply within me, um, what does he do? He says, your consolations delight my soul. Where does he get those consolations? He gets them from God's word. That's where we find God's word. Go to um, Psalm 105. A few psalms to the right. I'll start at verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Speak of all His wonders. And then verse 3. Glory in His holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. That's what you're after when you are opening your Bible in the morning. You are 
from your heart, from your inner man, you are seeking the Lord and you need to not leave that time until you have a sense of some type of gladness from him in it. That it was good for your soul to be drawing near to him in there. Uh, Do not wait for your soul to already be glad before you get into the word. Do you understand that? Do not wait for yourself to be happy in heart to say, now I'm ready to go to the Word. No. If your heart is far from Him, go to the Word. Seek the Lord in His Word and stay there. Linger there until you have some sense of, this is good for my soul. This is where I should be. Until you see change come. And there will be some days it will be a hard fight. And you may not feel anything. Take the Word with you into your day. Take, set your alarm to go off on your phone and instead of going down and getting another cup of coffee, uh, withdraw somewhere, take your Bible uh, and open it up and, and seek the Lord until your heart is glad. Um, that's the way you discipline yourself uh, to shepherd your heart to the Word of God. Let's talk about our homes. Go back to Psalm 78. I'll give you an Old Testament example. Psalm 78, verse 5. The psalmist is talking about what God had done for Israel or for Jacob. Verse 5, he said, For he, God, established a testimony in Jacob, and he appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers. He's talking about Mosaic law. Revelation from God, commands from him, testimonies from him. Why did he establish them? Why did he appoint them? Why did he command our fathers? At the end of verse 5, so that they should teach them to their children. The, uh, what Israel was supposed to do with God's law, with God's word, was to pass it on to their kids. Why would they do that? Verse 6. So that the generation to come might know, even yet the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. It's supposed to be a generational domino that would go on. That the fathers would tell their children and the children yet to be born would be told by their parents, and so forth. Why would they do that? Verse 7. So that they would put their confidence in God. Listen, if you do discipline two correctly, where you're stepping into your household with the Word of God, you're going to find it benefiting them in discipline one for them. They will put their confidence in God because you're caring well for your household. This is what was the implication for Israel. I think it's a timeless principle. And they would not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And then what they would not be like, verse 8, and they would not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. He compares them and contrasts what they could be in the future to what they were in the past as a nation. They didn't prepare their hearts. They did not shepherd their hearts toward God. But you, with your families, Israel, Jacob, you can be different. It can be different. There's the Old Testament example. Let me take you to a couple of New Testament examples. Go to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. We looked at these when we walked through um, Discipline 2 for the first time. Titus chapter 1. Qualifications are given um, for elders. 
to Titus for Titus to pass on to the church on the island of Crete. In verse 9, he says that one of the things that the men need to be able to do is hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he, the, the elder, the overseer, will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Why? Why do the elders need to be this way? Well, because, verse 10, there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. What about them? They must be silenced. Why? Because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. This is a kind of a backward way into the home to talk about it. There are homes that will be devastated because there will not be a watcher or a guardian over the home. The, where the, the question that should come to us when we read that passage is, where are the, the dads? Can you imagine this being said? Can you imagine Paul coming here and saying, Elders, you need to be this way because in the households in Grace Bible Church, and you men would be hearing him say this, in the households, there will be men who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families. The thing that you should say and ask would be, in my house? And the point is, if you're the right kind of man who's shepherding your heart and caring well for your family, it won't be your house. Or at least the impact on your household will not be as devastating. So there's going to be an attack on the household, even in the church. Um, elders are supposed to guard that, and men, you need to be there guarding it on the front lines in your household. Go back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, the same thing. Verse 1, But realize that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. The holding to a form of godliness. See, but the, all of that terrible description is under the robes of religious expression. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins. What kind of women are they? Not just weighed down with sins, but they're led on by various impulses. What kind of women are they? They are always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And the question we should ask is, where are the men? Um, it is a natural thing for husbands, for men to just neglect their household, to be present but not be present. And what we're saying in Discipline 2, what the Word of God is saying, I think, in Discipline 2 is you, that can't be. You must set a guard over your house. You must care for those who are in it. You must be concerned for their spiritual welfare. And you need to know the Word of God well enough that if a lie comes into your house through a blog, through Facebook, through TV, through whatever it is they're listening to, you'd be able to discern it and get it. Do you listen to what, those of you who have kids, do you listen to their music? To know what they're listening to? Have you thought about that? And I mean even the Christian music. Are you listening to it? To make sure that there's not lies coming in? You need to know what your kids are listening to um, so that you can defend your household well. All right, then we have the ministry. If you're a man who's caring well for your heart and you're guarding your home well and shepherding your household well, um, you're going to be the kind of man when you step into somebody else's life, you are going to uh, 
be a blessing to them. Let me give you a few passages. Let's, um, I'm going to steal a little bit. I won't say everything that Scott will say in 1 Thessalonians 5, but go to 1 Thessalonians 5, back up to verse, uh, or start at verse 12. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12. Paul had been with the Thessalonians for about three months at the most. And I don't think he had a chance probably to appoint elders there in that time. He perhaps did, but he doesn't call them elders. At least in verse 12, he says, But we request of you, brethren, church, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. He doesn't call them overseers or elders. He just says those who are in charge. So there were some who were in charge. And that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, live in peace with one another. And then he turns to the church again and he says, we urge you, brethren, here's how you care for each other. Admonish the unruly, um, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak, and be patient with everyone. That is not just an exhortation to the elders, that is an exhortation to the church, that the church must be able to warn each other, encourage each other, and help each other. So this is your ministry. You can... Uh, it's not the only way that ministry should be done. These are not the only three categories of interacting with one another. But these are a good place to start uh, in this relationship, in this conversation. What is needed from me? Do I need to help them? Do I need to encourage them? Or do I need to warn them? And it depends on what kind of person they are, right? Go to um, Romans chapter 15. You'll see another example of this. I'm giving you a little bit of a preview for tomorrow as well. Um, by going to these passages, what we'll talk about in the sermon. Romans 15, verse 14. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. Who's Who's he writing to? The brethren, the church. And so this is what you are. You are now in Christ, full of all goodness, We know that the Bible says there is no one who is good, not even one, but that's not what this says. This says now you are full of all goodness. Where did that fullness of goodness come? From Christ himself. And in that goodness, fullness of goodness, what are you able to do? You are filled with all knowledge and you are able to admonish one another, to warn one another. There's your ministry to one another. One more place. I think it's probably the best. Go to Colossians 3, verse 16 for your ministry to one another. I, I love this because this ties really the, the Bible back into um, making the Bible central in your ministry to one another. Verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom. Here you go. Teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Uh, what a... What a great picture of what the body of Christ is supposed to be and do together. Um, That as the word of Christ is dwelling within you richly, um, with all wisdom, you would teach one another. So here's another category, not just warn, not just um, help, not just encourage, but you need to teach one another. But you also need to be admonishing one another, warning one another. And you do that also as a community, as a family that sings and expresses thankfulness to God uh, from your heart. Uh, So there's your ministry. Um, Again, caring for your heart well first will be an overflow into your home. You're caring well for your household, which then overflows well into ministry in the church and even beyond the church and evangelism. 
And then when men are being that way, we want to set in front of those kinds of men qualifications. So go to 1 Timothy 3, and I'll just point out a couple of things to you in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. You know this in verse 1, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. Look at verse 2. The umbrella qualification over all of them, an overseer then must be above reproach. And then everything else that follows tells you what it means to be above reproach. Um, that means being above reproach that an accusation cannot stick to the man. It doesn't mean that he's sinless. It means, though, that a charge comes up against him and it drops because it will not stick to the man. Look at verse um, 10. We're talking about the deacons now in verse 8. These men, the deacons, must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. So even the deacons are to be Teflon-coated in character, right? An accusation comes, but it just slides off. doesn't mean that he's perfect. It means that it just does not stick. Go over to Titus chapter 1 to the elders there and the overseers there. Verse 6, namely, if any man is above reproach, And then in verse 7, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. And again, all that it means for above reproach. By the way, above reproach, and we'll talk about this. Scott will talk about this when he does the deacon lesson, and I'll do an elder lesson, um, qualification lesson. All of the qualifications for deacons and for elders are assumed and expected for every Christian. In Philippians 2, all, all of the church are to be blameless and above reproach in a crooked and perverse generation. All Christians are to be. So in what sense, then, is an elder above reproach if all of the church is supposed to be above reproach? The elder is above reproach in the sense that he is exemplary, an example to the others of what it means to be above reproach. Do you understand? So elders, overseers, and even deacons need to be examples of being above reproach. And so what we want to do is keep the qualifications in front of you so that you uh, prayerfully consider what God might do with your own life. Not every man here will become an elder. Not every man here will become a deacon. But every man should aspire to these qualifications. And some men then will aspire to the office itself. Then with that, discipline five for us is the hermeneutic. And hermeneutics means the rules for interpreting Scripture. What we're going to do by the end of the year is we're going to set in front of you the rules for interpreting Scripture that we think are what we should use. Uh, they're not just uh, what we use for the Bible, but they're what we use in everyday language. Uh, and I'll give you a, a phrase. You pay attention to the words in their relationship with one another in their context. Those three parts. That's the hermeneutic will teach you. This is what you count on in every conversation you have. You use words. You pick words. Then you put other words together with that word, with those words. You put words together. So words and their relationship to one another. And in every conversation, there is a context. And meaning comes out of that. It has always been this way. It has never not been this way. It will always be this way. We use words. We put them together. And we have them in a context. So if I say to you, the tornado is over the hill... And we're standing in Nebraska on a May afternoon and the clouds are churning and it's over the hill. You understand. If I then say to you at another time, my dad is over the hill. You don't think the same thing because words put together mean one thing in one context, but in another context, they mean something else using the very same words. 
Um, and the way that we expect people to honor our words as we put them together and have them in a context, God just needs to get the same courtesy with his word. And so we're going to teach you more about that at the end. And all of that flows towards and in and grows and advances in Grace Bible Church, our last discipline. Um, we want you to be this individually as a Christian, but not as an individual Christian just living out there in the world. We all go to Grace Bible Church. We're a part of the family of God here. And so all of this needs to benefit what goes on at Grace Bible Church. Man, you need to benefit from what we're doing here. Pray to God that you are. But um, not just you must benefit. This church needs to benefit from what you're becoming in Christ. Um, because God expects men to lead the church. And so we are um, laboring in your life. We want you to labor in your own life so that you can be uh, what God wants you to be before him and him alone. So that you can be what you must be in your household. And so this church has leaders to lead it. Okay? All right. Good morning. I think most everyone knows, but my name is Jacob Hantla, and I'm one of the younger elders here. So thank you for being here this morning. We're going to be going through Proverbs 4.23. And uh, I and, and all the elders were so grateful that the terms shepherd your heart, guard your heart, right, what, you, what we've been focusing all year on at Build, that they've become commonplace at Grace, right? It's just, if you talk to people at Grace Bible Church, you're going to hear talk about the heart. You say, how you doing this week? It's so sweet that inevitably, when I ask that question of people here at Grace, what comes out is talking about the heart, or even I'm asked, how you doing shepherding your heart this week? How sweet is that? And um, I think we've been intentional to put this emphasis on the heart, right? The same emphasis that the Bible places on the heart. But I hope this morning, through Proverbs 4.23 and other verses, that um, God's Word would direct us to better understand what we should mean when we talk about shepherding or guarding the heart. So our passage today, Proverbs 4.23, Solomon tells us that above all else, above all else, as an item of first importance, that we must guard our hearts. Right? This is foundational for the Christian life. We must never graduate from heart shepherding, from heart guarding. Right? At Grace, we recognize that this is so important that this class build in, in the women's side, Wellspring. We want everybody in our church, from small groups, across the, from the sermons on Sunday, to even all, all the equipping hour classes. We, we want the, the goal and the focus of what comes out of everything that we do to be guarding our hearts. So we hope that, that the heartbeat of, of this lesson this morning, of everything that we do at Grace, that it echoes Solomon's wise words that we would place as our first and most foundational discipline. Uh, our discipline one of shepherding our hearts, right? We can't play leapfrog over our hearts when it comes to the Christian life. So uh, I hope that that when you think about guarding your heart, um, I really hope that today's lesson helps you think of purity of heart and what that means and what its implications are for your life. 
So open your Bible to Proverbs 4.23 with me. Proverbs 4.23 and let's pray. God, I, I beg that as we have your word open in front of us, as I speak, hoping to expose the truth of your word and you, the God that's revealed there, God, I beg that you would guard and guide my words. That you would reveal to us, reveal yourself to us through your word and cause us to worship you. God, I I pray that you would grant us understanding by your spirit. And Holy Spirit, please grant my heart and the heart of my hearers a submissive posture before your word. These are your words contained in Scripture with the same power that when spoken by you brought everything into existence. God, these words are more powerful than we can comprehend, and I beg that my words would be faithful to your word. So finally, God, transform us, sanctify us, perhaps even save some this morning. God, please use this message this morning to make me guard my heart more diligently. In Jesus' name, amen. So look down, Proverbs 4.23. It's an incredibly simple passage. But it's an incredibly profound passage that teaches us a profound and simple truth. And armed with this, we're going to be better equipped to understand the importance of the battle for our hearts. Right, you'll be better equipped to pursue God and better equipped to fight sin. You'll be better equipped to shepherd your hearts, your homes, and your ministry. So Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of all life, of your life. Proverbs 4.23, right, there's three parts to the verse. There's a what, a how, and a why. A what, a how, and a why, and that's the outline that we're going to use today. So look down at your Bible, look at the verse, and identify that with me. The what is the command. What, what's the command of Proverbs 4.23? Solomon, the wise father, he gives his son an imperative. Something that he must do. It's guard your heart. You could look at the English versions to get, get the range of what this could mean. Keep your heart. Watch over your heart. Guard your heart. How is he, how is he to guard his heart? Above all else. Or with all vigilance. With all diligence. And why is he to guard his heart this way? Because it's the source of life. Um, other English versions render the Hebrew as, it's for from it flow the springs of life, it's the source of life, or it's the wellspring of life. Proverbs 4.23, it's, it's really easy to understand. You probably already have it memorized. Right? A what, a how, and a Why? Guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. 
We're going to start this morning looking at the why. The why of Solomon's command, the heart is the source or the well from which all other behaviors flow. That's why it's so important that you would guard your heart above all else. So have you ever sinned and thought, where did that come from? Just think back to to your last week. Think back to to maybe the simple sins that you're tempted to to pass over. Or or maybe the big sins that plague you, that that you're really fighting. Think think back to those sins. And if you ask, where did that come from? Maybe exploding at your roommates, a short temper with your wife, anger at your children, entertaining or acting on sinful fantasies, laziness, lying, gossip, sharp speech. Where, where did that come from? Was that an anomaly that's just different from you? Well, you know the answer that that sin, indeed everything you do, right? Good or bad, every action, every thought, deed or word. You can think of it as the water that's flowing from the wellspring or the source of your life. It's, it's flowing from your heart. So Proverbs 4.23 will help us get at the root of these sins. And even better than that, it's going to prepare us for the gospel solution to the heart of the problem. And it's going to guide us towards how to, how to actually walk in purity of life. So the inspired Solomon, this is a profound illustration for your life. And it's helpful if you think of everything that you do, think, say, all of that is living as water flowing from the, your heart source. Obviously, this isn't your physical blood pumping heart. But there's definitely some similarities But rather, it's the term that the Bible uses to describe the most inner you. The source of all that you do, think, and are. It might sound pretty simple. I know that we've rehearsed this all year at Build. But this simple truth has pretty profound consequences. Because it reveals the relationship between the heart and our actions. So, write this down. There is no part of the way that you live that doesn't flow from your heart. Think about that. There is no part of the way that you live that doesn't flow from your heart. Or put another way, there is no part of your life that your heart does not affect. There's no part of your life that your heart does not affect. Right? If, if your heart is the source from which everything you do, think, are flows. There's no part of the way that you live that doesn't flow from your heart. And then the corollary of that is there's no part of your life that your heart does not affect. So the image here, it's, it's of a city's vital water source. Pure water at the source can provide everyone in the city with pure water. 
But what happens if that if that heart source, if if that source, that well of the city, what happens if that's contaminated? Is there any hope for pure water? This is a problem because the Bible describes the heart, our life source, in some pretty unflattering terms. Consider Jeremiah seventeen nine. You probably are all familiar with that verse. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In Genesis 6, 5. Consider that God saw the wickedness in man's heart and he was moved to kill everyone but Noah and his family. Open your Bible to Genesis 6-5 and look at God's assessment of the natural human heart with me. Genesis 6-5. Yahweh saw the wickedness of man, saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention of natural man's heart is only evil continually. And the flood didn't fix this heart problem, right? That description of man's heart as only evil continually is just as true today as it was in Noah's day. So there's no part of your life that doesn't flow from this wellspring. And if this wellspring is deceitful, desperately sick, only evil continually, based on Proverbs 4.23, what would you expect to come from the man with this evil life source? A poisoned well will only produce poisoned water. A wicked, unrighteous heart can only produce wicked, unrighteous actions. And always consistent with itself and the truth, this is exactly what we find God's assessment of natural man's heart in life is in his word. Genesis 6.5 plus Proverbs 4.23. Genesis 6.5, every intention of his heart was only evil continually. This is down on the bottom of your of your note page. If you take that and you add it to Proverbs 4.23 that says the heart is the source of all life, you'd get exactly what Romans 3.10, quoting Psalm 14.1-3 says. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. No one naturally has a good heart. And no one, not even one, does good before God. Humanity is a bunch of wicked people with unrighteous lives because they have wicked hearts. This is the description of unregenerate man. Right? Living in an unmixed, sinful condition. 
But praise God and remember this. God does not leave the Christian in this condition. Right? You should no longer speak of your heart in these terms. Speaking of the new covenant that Israel, with Israel, that Christian Gentiles get to enjoy as well. God says in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I, Yahweh says, will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Right? What does God promise here? He promises to change the heart and a changed life follows. This hasn't yet happened for Israel, but it is exactly what God does when he saves us. What vivid imagery. So I, I have a sweet job. I, I get to administer anesthesia every day. Um, and cardiac anesthesia. It's, it's, I get to see just how important a healthy human heart is. And most of the hearts I get to work with are not healthy. So when I get to see a good one, it, it's, it's such a contrast. It's, it's sobering to see what happens when a heart goes bad. <clears throat> when a heart goes bad, blood stops flowing effectively. And the whole, whole body goes bad. God designed healthy human hearts to be really elastic. Blood pours in from the venous side and the heart just stretches to accommodate it. The more it stretches, the harder it pumps the blood out. Right? That's what, what happens when you're young and healthy. You, you exercise and the blood just moves quicker. Your organs need blood. Your, your body provides the blood it needs. But when the heart's diseased or when it's had a, its, blood si its blood supply seriously compromised, the supple and powerful heart actually becomes like stone. You can look at that under, under echo. You can see the blood coming in. And a, a, a healthy heart that would just stretch, this heart's like stone. It's just more passive. It doesn't really pump very well. And when it pumps so weakly, the, the net effect is that the organs are starved. Right? If a bad human heart leads to a bad human body, right? the organs are starved, cognitive function deteriorates, lungs fill with fluid, kidneys shut down, muscles refuse to work. You know, even getting out of bed, sitting up, taxes people. The body is incapacitated in weakness and lethargy, and it ultimately leads to misery and death. And it's remarkable, if you've ever known anybody who's had a heart transplant, it's remarkable to see how a dying body, it looks like everything in the body is, is basically dead because the heart itself is, is, so, is functioning so poorly. How, it's crazy to see how that human heart is rejuvenated with a heart transplant. That stony heart is removed and it's replaced with a healthy heart. And the, the person becomes like a new person. Dying organs are rejuvenated by new blood flow. A slow mind quickens, and a body that looked like death, it's filled with new life. And Christian, you're, you had an old, 
dead heart of stone. I had this heart. And God gave us a new heart of flesh. So much better than the the heart that we get in a heart transplant. And the the, the effects are so much more all-encompassing and remarkable. But that illustration is helpful to remember and to help me worship God for just what He did at regeneration in the Gospel. God took your old dead heart. He replaced it with a new heart. You were born again. John 3.3 Right? You're a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 God has given you a new heart. At regeneration, God declared us righteous and changed us from the heart so that for the first time we would have the, the ability to obey God, to love God from the heart. We still live in a mixed condition, right? We still have our sinful flesh. We're still able to sin. But we have new hearts. And for the first time, you're able not to sin. You're able to please God. You're able to shepherd your heart from sin to God. Now with this new heart, having been declared righteous in justification... We've been set on a trajectory to increasingly live out our righteousness from the heart in sanctification. We used to be slaves of sin. Why? Why did we used to be slaves of sin? Because our heart was sinful. We used to be disobedient from the heart. But Romans 6.17, turn there. Romans 6.17 It tells us what God has done. And Paul starts with just the right words. This must be our, these must be our words as we rehearse this, right? Romans 6, 17, Paul starts with, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, you've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves to righteousness. One of my favorite authors, 17th century Puritan John Flavel, he wrote a whole book on these verses that I would, I would recommend. You can pick it up on Amazon for like five bucks. It's called Keeping the Heart. The real name was really long. It was like a paragraph, but they've changed it to Keeping the Heart for us. Um, John Flavel said it well. He said, The heart of man is his worst part before salvation and his best part after it. Praise and thank God for that. Seriously, stop, stop right now and praise and thank God for that. For his regenerating work in your heart. For many, this might seem like an old theological truth with which you're familiar, right? This is not new news. This is something that that we hear often, that we rehearse regularly. It's something with which you're familiar, but familiarity can sometimes rob us of the opportunity to worship. Right? Familiarity can sometimes make us not thankful for the things for which we should be most thankful. Right? Think of your kids getting dinner every night. 
something for which they should be thankful, which you try to, something for which I try to care for my kids. Say thank you to mommy when she gives you dinner that tastes good. They're familiar with it. They get it every night. They lose sight of the fact that something that they should be thankful for. Right? We, we thankfully rehearse these gospel truths to ourselves. It's all over the pages of scripture. We hear it on Sunday. We hear it in small group. We hear it at build. We hear it when we talk to each other. Something with which we're familiar. Don't lose the opportunity to worship and be thankful. MacArthur said it well. Heard him say one time, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. So before this glorious truth of the gospel, fight today and every day. That as you sit under the blazing hot, magnificent truths from God's word, especially in the gospel, that your heart would be soft wax, melting before its radiance instead of clay that would be baked, made hard by familiarity. So Proverbs 4.23, it told us that the heart is the wellspring of our lives. And that would be horrible news if it was not for this great news, that when God saves us, he changes us from the heart. The change in us that the gospel brings, it isn't superficial. It's not behavior modification. Right? Every change that the world could bring through psychology, through medications, through positive self-talk or discipline, the world can affect change, right? They can make you look better. The world has lots of techniques to make you do better, look better. These have to only be superficial. They can't touch you at the heart source. But God does. God changes us from the very wellspring of our life. He's taken out that stony heart, given us a new heart. He's taken the poisonous well and made it clean. He's changed us from your very wellspring, from your heart. So let everything else that you learn today, remember this, everything that you learn, everything that you resolve to do, It must sit under that massive truth of the gospel. That God has declared us righteous, changed us from the heart. This is not of ourselves. It's of the grace of God. It's not of works so that none of us can boast. God's prepared us for good works that we should walk in them. And he's given us the new heart so that we can do just that. And if God's not changed you from the heart... Right, if you're hearing me talk about this and you're like, this seems foreign. I, I don't recognize a heart change here. Um, if th- maybe you've never heard of this heart change or, or you're still clinging to some merit, some righteousness for your standing before God. If you're not a Christian, but you're here just doing religious things, you're going to church to clean up your act. Know for sure that your religious efforts in and of themselves, they're futile. Because they're not for God's glory and they flow from a wicked heart. They're, they're evil before God's eyes, no matter how good they might look outwardly. And in a room this size, I suspect there's a good chance that at least one, some here, 
have not been changed from the heart. That some here have been content with religion. Please consider if that's you. Right? No matter how long you've been here, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. You'll pass the test if Jesus Christ is in you. It's right for us to examine ourselves. And if so, confess it to God. Despair of any goodness that you thought you might have on your own. And turn to God in desperate faith and ask Him to cleanse you from the heart. And He will. The problem of sin comes from the heart and the solution must deal with the heart. Puritan pastor Richard Baxter, another one of my favorites. You should really be reading a lot of old dead guys. They're really helpful. And he he wisely advised the church. Till the Spirit, this is on your page, till the Spirit has regenerated the soul, all outward religion will be a dead and pitiful thing. To make up a religion of doing or saying something that's good, while the heart is void of the Spirit of Christ and sanctifying grace, is the hypocrite's religion. To pretend that you're holy through religious exercise and hard work while your evil heart remains unchanged and your position before God hasn't been declared righteous, if your sins haven't been removed from you, Jesus' righteousness placed on you, your heart changed, all your religious exercise and hard work, this is the religion of the Pharisees, And God will be glorified to judge that religion. But praise God, he has no interest in religion. But through the gospel, by Jesus' work at the cross, God gives us new hearts. Right, Romans 6.17. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. So if you're not a Christian or if you've been living your Christian life without a view to these things, repent and trust God anew for those sins to forgive you those sins and to give you and maintain in you this new heart free to love him. So Christian, your heart is precious. Your heart is precious not only because it's the source from which your whole life flows, but because it was made new through the gospel. Right? Remember this image. It's it's of a city. So imagine a city. Imagine a city. Solomon probably had this in mind. Imagine a city with a poisoned well. That city could not flourish. Just like the man with the heart failure could not thrive. The city could not flourish. And in fact, a city with a poisoned well, it would be full of death. And imagine what would happen in that city if one day the king filled in that old poisonous well and he dug another one. One that was pure. Immediately, that city would be full of new life that they had never known before. Those who had been made weak, anemic, and dying from the poison, they had a taste of that which they never knew, pure water. 
those people, right, in that city, those people would know the importance of the wellspring. They would know the effects of a tainted well. And they would know the joys of purity. Those people would know the importance of a pure water source. And they would never think. It would never cross their mind. I wonder how much poison we could let back in that well and still be okay. No, they would do what? They would guard that well with all vigilance. Above all else, they would be guarding that well because they know that their very lives depend on it. From that well flows their life. Christian, we are that people. So in light of that illustration, consider this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Another old dead guy you should be reading. <clears throat> this is also on your page. And think of the build disciplines as you read. Think of the effect of your heart and the fight to guard your heart. On not only your heart, but your home, your ministry, <clears throat> and all of your life. He said, the poison of the soul is only sin. And this is like to poison in many respects. Poison, wherever it enters, stays not there. But it diffuses itself all over the body. And it never ceaseth until it has infected all. Such is the nature of sin. Enter where it will, it will creep from one member of the body to another. And from the body to the soul, till it has infected the whole man. And then from man to man, till the whole family. And it stays not there, but it runs like wildfire from family to family, till it has poisoned a whole town, and so a whole country, and a whole kingdom. Woeful experience proves this true. The poison of sin, it isn't content to stay inside your own heart. It will seek to destroy you. But it goes from there to your home, then to your ministry in your small group, right? your ministry within the church. What poison are you dabbling with? What poison are you dabbling with? Have you been content to say, how much poison could I let back in this well and still be okay? Remember purity and long for it. Don't stop at anything to guard your well. For the sake of, of your life, for your home, for your family, for your small group, for this church, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Right, The truth that the heart is the wellspring of life, it leads very naturally to Solomon's command. Remember, we have a, a why. We just covered that. That why, once we understand it, it leads very naturally to the what. If the heart's the wellspring, what do you do? You guard it. Guard your heart. Sin is the poison. Purity is to be protected. So guard your heart. 
So notice with me that Solomon is speaking to his son. And he gives this instruction as a command. It's not, it's not something optional. And it's not something passive. The word used here for guard, watch, keep, it's the same word that's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe an alert sentry in a watchtower. Like one on a Judean mountainside guarding a city's valuable resources. And what could be more valuable to a city than its water supply? A city dependent on a pure water source It would obviously place alert sentries around that spring to protect the purity of the water. How much more would a city at war have guards on watch, knowing that a real threat could and would appear at any moment? We have a precious, newly pure water source with ever-present threats seeking to poison the well. Right from our flesh, from temptations. We must guard our hearts. So how do we do that? How can we guard our hearts? How can we keep the source of our life pure? Well, David, the man after God's own heart, who Solomon certainly heard talk about the heart, Uh, He asked pretty much the same question. How do you guard your heart? He asked the same question in Psalm 119, verse 9. Go there. Psalm 119, verse 9. It's on the bottom of your page. Go there in your Bible. Highlight it, underline it, circle it, memorize it. Psalm 119.9. Read with me. How can a young man... Keep his way pure. How do you keep poison out of your out of your life? How would you answer this question? How would you answer this question? How how do you keep your way pure? Let's see how David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, answers it. By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. So how did David guard his way? By guarding his heart. And how did David guard his heart? David guarded his heart with God's word. And David guarded his heart by seeking God through his word. As you guard your heart, you will be protecting it from evil. Right? And that might be what came into your mind first and what we've talked about, right? You want to keep poison out of your heart. You're going to be protecting it, your heart from evil. You're not going to be wandering from God's commandments. You will be careful who and what you allow close to your heart. You'll be careful to fight temptation, careful to not think that your heart can tolerate just a little bit of evil. You will protect your heart from exposure to things that would poison the wellspring of your life. But, and this is huge, we see here that more importantly and more fundamental to the guarding of heart, or most fundamental to the guarding of your heart, 
It isn't just what you keep out. But it's what you keep in. Purity of the heart isn't merely avoidance of sin. How do you keep your way pure? Seek God with all your heart. With my whole heart, David says, I seek you. As we guard the wellspring of our heart, we must be shepherding our hearts to the word of God to get the God of the word. In your guarding of your heart, make sure that you're not shepherding it to pharisaical, behavior-focused religion, but to God and the gospel. Let's look at a New Testament parallel to this concept of, of David's heart purifying God seeking in Psalm 119. It's in 1 John 3, 2 through 3. The top of the last page. Turn turn there in your Bible. 1 John 3, 2 through 3. John says, Beloved, we are God's children now. But what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Not just us, but everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Christian, God has changed you. He has even made you his child, given you a nature like his from the heart. But this change of nature, although drastic, it's not yet complete. Right? We're no longer in that unmixed, unregenerate condition, and neither are we in the unmixed heavenly man position. We're in that mixed man condition. That's what he means when what we will be has not yet appeared. One day, though, when we see God as he is, in a moment, we will be made to look completely like him. This flesh that so easily entangles us which is so easily contaminated, it will be removed and we will be made pure even as God himself is pure. But this passage doesn't merely make us give up hope of purity now and wait for that day. Right? How do you purify what we are purified by hope in him? But let's look to that ultimate day and, and what brings the change. How will purity come on that day when Jesus returns? Look at the text. What's the answer? Beloved, we're God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we'll see him as he is. 
We will be made like him, pure in heart and in nature, heart and flesh, when we see God as he is. Where does God, where can we see God most clearly, most accurately now? If in that final day, we'll be made pure by seeing God as he is. Um, we would be wise to look to where God most clearly reveals himself to us now, which is in his word. So just as David keeps his way pure by seeking God in his word, the New Testament Christian is to hope on God, fixing the gaze of his heart on him as we look for him revealed in his word. Do you do that when you open up God's word? What do you think of when, when you read the Bible? Right, Part of the, the assignment for Build is be in God's word every day. I would encourage you, I have key to my Bible reading. I encourage this to be key to yours too. Don't let your butt get out of the chair in the morning until you've asked this question of the text before you. What does this reveal about God? If the Bible is God's revelation of himself to us, it isn't merely a collection of truths or an instruction manual set of rules and regulations. It may contain those things. But most fundamentally, God's word is revelation of himself to us. So, so I'd encourage you, don't, don't leave your time in the word without asking that question. What does this reveal about God? And how must I be different? How must my life be affected as a result? So, as we hope in him and flee heart-contaminating sin, which is exactly what the verses which follow in First John 3 say, we are purified more and more into what we shall ultimately be as glorified children of God when he returns. Do you see how important it is to flee sin? And even more so to fix the gaze of your heart, hopefully on God and his word? So now, just like understanding that the heart is the wellspring of your life leads naturally to the command, guard your heart. Now we see the heart's the wellspring, we must guard it. it this leads naturally to the, the how of Solomon's words. With how precious your heart is, the command to guard it makes sense. And how must we do this? Well, above all else, with all diligence, with all vigilance. We have a new heart with new love and affections for God. But the flesh within, Satan and temptations without, are constantly assaulting the heart, seeking to taint it with sin, <clears throat> seeking to distract us from a wholehearted pursuit of God. So set up a guard for your heart by above all else not being content to let even an ounce of sin in. 
Rather, we seek to guard our hearts by seeking God with our whole hearts through his word. All the time, every day, no higher priorities, no days off. What, what do you do with more attention than you give to guarding your heart? The answer, according to God's word, should be nothing. Right? So I'm not talking about, and Solomon is not talking about, guarding your heart like you might put up a chain link fence, right? And install security cameras to guard sort of important things. Right? Your house is important, so you might have a, an alarm system on somewhat passive guard something that's there sort of effective that's that's what you do for sort of important things right but we're we're talking about the most important thing the heart the wellspring of your life the very thing that you're supposed to seek god with the thing that's supposed to be pure towards God, the very thing that God and the gospel made new. Do you know what the United States does for its most important assets? Let me give you an example. Think of NORAD, right? That's the North American Aerospace Defense Command. It's placed deep within Cheyenne Mountain. within the Cheyenne Mountains, it's surrounded by at least 2,000 feet of granite on every side. It's enclosed by thick doors, blast valves, and it has its own multi-million gallon water supply. It has a multitude of sensors constantly assessing for any and every threat to its own security and the security of our nation. It's designed to survive a near-direct hit with a nuclear bomb. And this is the kind of guarding that God's Word is exhorting us to. That's the modern-day equivalent of the walls and constant presence of alert sentries or guards that Solomon probably had in mind. Right? What does the United States do to his, to his president? Secret Service. What do we do with NORAD? Stick it inside a mountain. What do you do for your heart? Do you just assume it's purity? Do you just are you content with little disciplines like merely reading the Bible and the Word and going up, or in the reading God's Word in the morning and going on in your day? Or have you actually set up? Disciplines, patterns, are you alert? Have you alerted your friends, your wife, your roommates? That my heart is precious. It's under attack. We must guard its purity above all else. To be on the alert, constantly checking the purity of your water and setting up guards to help you pursue God with all your heart. Right, so Solomon commands us that the way we must guard our heart is above all, is with all vigilance and above all else. And when God in his word commands us to do something above all else, we ought to listen. This isn't a suggestion. It's sobering. 
This isn't something that would be good to do in addition to all the other things that we do. No, it must be done in all the other things that we do. Guarding your heart must be the most important task of your life. And it must be done in all of life because all of your life flows from that heart. It must be done with more energy than anything else you do in life. So like the Secret Service vigilantly protects the president, like the United States protects NORAD, and like a city protects its water supply, we must guard our hearts vigilantly, diligently, and above all else. And as we think about the need to do this, it's sobering to consider the one who wrote the book of Proverbs. The one who wrote this command. Solomon. Right? Surely, surely he knew, above all people, right? He knew the fact that if a life is to be pure and holy unto God, the source had to be pure as well. He certainly heard it from his father, saw it modeled saw the tragic effects of heart compromise firsthand with his father, with Bathsheba. He saw the effects when his father pursued God with all his heart. He was inspired by God to write these words. Certainly Solomon knew this. But being convinced of the necessity of heart guarding is not sufficient. There can be lots of up and down with your head this morning. There can be lots of, that is so true. I want to do that this morning. There can be lots of talk about your heart. But agreeing with Solomon about this verse, agreeing with God's word about the necessity and even the means of guarding your heart, it does not automatically mean that you are guarding your heart. Be careful here. Being excited about guarding your heart doesn't mean we're doing it. And standing up here and teaching a message about guarding your heart doesn't mean I'm doing it. We may be better positioned to guard our hearts because of this morning. But this doesn't automatically mean that we are guarding our hearts because we were here this morning. So in light of that, consider Solomon with me. And let's read 1 Kings 11, 1 through 4. Turn there in your Bibles. 1 Kings 11, 1 through 4. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. For they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. 
he had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines. And what happened? His wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. David sought God with his whole heart. Solomon, through a series of heart-poisoning compromises, had his heart turned away. What was the effect? His heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord. So what would you anticipate the effects of a heart not wholly devoted to the Lord would be? Remember that quote from Charles Spurgeon? Let's see it play out. Consider the horrible effects on Solomon's heart, home, and ministry due to a series of compromises in the area of heart shepherding. D1, his heart turned to false gods. D2, his children did not love God. D3, within a generation, the kingdom was ripped in two, inundated with idolatry, and finally God's people were marched out of their promised land to exile in chains. Little compromises that Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, was certainly cert- he was certain he could handle. These little compromises poisoned the well and all that flowed from it. That's sobering. That demonstrates the reality that we must do this above all else in everything we do. No days off with all vigilance. Solomon certainly knew Proverbs 4.23 better than we do. He wrote it. But guarding your heart is much more than knowing the command. Guarding your heart is much more than being excited about guarding your heart or being able to use the language of heart guarding. We must actually do it. And yesterday's success at guarding your heart, it doesn't guarantee tomorrow's. There is something true if you, if you watch, if you read on in Proverbs 4, right? You want to keep your eyes straight before you. Don't veer to the right or the left. You can imagine your heart guarding almost as a path that you wear. Keep your eyes firmly focused on God and every day make a practice not veering to the right or the left. Walk in the same path. Wear yourself a path where there's dangers on the left and the right. Walk in that path every day with your eyes focused straight ahead. And, um, but don't compromise. Yesterday's successes, they may help today's heart guarding but they certainly don't guarantee it. So above all else, more than you pursue food each day, more than you seek to care for your home, more than you do a good job at work, more than you diligently care for your children, more than anything else, above all else, guard your heart. 
So God has given us a new heart. He's given you the Holy Spirit, and he commands you and enables you to guard your heart. You must do this above all else. No higher priorities. And it's a lifelong, faithful process. We must be diligent to accomplish until the end. Christian, you were saved by God's grace. And we will only guard our heart by God's grace. So recognizing the importance of the tasks and that the stakes are high. As you diligently guard, depend on grace. Right, Your heart was created by God. It will be sustained by God. What does Paul say in Galatians? The Galatians weren't trying to sustain themselves by grace. They were trying to sustain themselves through work. Oh, foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. You began, did you begin by hearing with faith or by works of the flesh? You're not going to be perfected by any means other than the means by which you started. You were started on this path by grace through faith. You will be sustained on this path by grace through faith. Remember, God isn't interested in religion. He's interested in heart change through the cleansing of the cross that comes and is sustained only by seeking him through his word. He doesn't grant justification by any means other than faith in himself. And he doesn't accomplish sanctification by any other means of faith in himself. So the question I have for you is, how well have you been doing at this kind of heart guarding? Just like a city might monitor its water supply for evidence of poison, so too we should evaluate what is flowing from our wellspring to help us evaluate how pure the source is. Maybe you haven't been guarding your heart. Well, today, your heart is your most important priority. So let me give you some questions to help you evaluate and guide your heart guarding. This is on your homework on your green sheet. You're going to be doing this this week or in the next couple weeks. So SRP, right, our, our cities do constant water purity tests. They check what comes out of the pipes in our homes to test the purity of the water at the source. Those tasks with ensuring that we have pure water in our homes, they don't come and make sure that you have nicely polished faucets. They don't come and make sure that you have nice clean cups. They certainly don't, don't take confidence in those polished pipes, fancy water fixtures, or nice cups. They're, no, they're constantly vigilantly monitoring the water as a means of determining the purity of the wellspring. So similarly, Christians, we must be constantly monitoring our hearts in the shadow of the cross where Jesus died to give us new hearts and reconcile us to him. C.J. Mahaney, he, he wrote... We, we study our hearts in the shadow of the cross 
as a means of protecting our hearts from the daily presence and opposition of sin. If you don't watch, he said, you will inevitably weaken. What does CJ mean in the shadow of the cross? This is so important. We must watch our hearts, but always be mindful of the cross, of what Jesus accomplished for us in the gospel as he gave his life for us. Right? In the shadow of the cross, we find forgiveness, of, forgiveness when sin is revealed. Right? As you monitor your heart, you're not going to hide sin. As if, oh no, when I find sin, my righteousness before God is threatened. In the shadow of the cross, we find forgiveness of sin. In the shadow of the cross, we find hope. We've been given a new heart, and sin is no longer our master. God is more committed to your holiness, your purity of heart, than you or I could ever be. He died to secure it. And in the shadow of the cross, as we pursue purity and repentance from sin, we see those sins in proper perspective. Forgiven and not our master. And also in the shadow of the cross, we see obedience in its proper place. You and I do not obey in order to earn God's pleasure. Our obedience does not earn us eternal life or merit righteousness or standing before God. In the shadow of the cross, we don't hold up our obedience and say, See, God, I'm your child. Rather, we say, God, you accomplished this obedience by making me your child, changing me from the heart. Rather than standing as proudly saying, God, look at my works. We stand saying, thank you, God, for producing these works. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, right? It's a free gift of God. It's not of works so that no man should boast. And why did God do this? For his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works that he prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. This is all from God, for God, through God, sustained by God. He is more committed to this than you or I could ever be. And in the shadow of the cross, our sin is placed in proper perspective, no longer our master and forgiven, and our obedience is placed in proper perspective. Not as meritorious, but merely as fruit and evidence of God's heart change in us. In the shadow of the cross, we recognize that our righteousness could not add one iota to the perfect righteousness that we were given. But rather, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So I've given you a few questions that I want you to consider now and then over the following weeks. Don't consider these on your own. Involve your friends, your spouse, maybe your kids, 
your small group? No doubt you can come up with much better questions, but these should get you started on your heart's water purity check. So do you sense, this question A, on your green page, what does this reveal about your guarding of your heart? Do you usually sense a presence or absence of affection for God? Do you have an appetite for God's word? Are you daily shepherding your heart to God in his word? Do your daily routines, including entertainment choices, internet use, free time, priorities, reflect that you're guarding your heart above all else? I'll tell you what's a really good barometer of how I've been checking my heart. For those who have smartphones, which I think is probably almost everybody, when you pull your phone out of your pocket, you know, you have five minutes to blow. You pull your phone out of your pocket, your thumb is a great indicator of how you've been guarding your heart. Where does it naturally go? If you have five minutes to five minutes to play with, what does it do? A, a few helpful apps to, to help guard your heart. Um, Logos or Bible app, just something where you can be loaded with God's word and books that would guide you there. And there's another one, Fighter Verses. Very helpful. John Piper, Bethlehem, Desiring God, and and somebody at Piper's Church put out an app. Very helpful. Just spend a couple minutes flipping through a collection of memory verses. Oh, I have a few minutes to go. How can I seek God in these minutes? I'm going to memorize his word. And it's a very helpful app. I'm sure there's lots of others, but think of how your thumb on a TV remote or on your smartphone might reflect. It might be a water purity test. And what Angry Birds might, might reveal about, about your heart. How do your prayers reflect the vigilance with which you guard your heart? What lures your heart away from God? How diligently do you flee this? And there, there may, those are just some general questions to get you going. There's going to be areas in your own life where you can say, when I begin to compromise, when I start to let sin in, or when I haven't been diligent to pursue God with all my heart, here's where I start faltering first. Ask your wife if you're married. Ask your roommates, ask your friends, or just consider consider your own heart and your own life. What would be like an early warning sign that you've begun to wander? What could be some questions and some guards, that some things you could alert your own heart and mind to, that you could alert your wife to? Like, oh, when we go to bed without maybe rehearsing core questions to each other? That's a sign that I've begun to wander. Um, When I put the kids to bed and don't pray with them, that's a sign that my heart's begun to wander. 
when I come home and sit on the couch and turn the TV on and don't talk to you, that's a sign that my heart has begun to wander. When you see me fall behind on my Bible reading plan, that's a sign that my heart's begun to wander. Tell, those are just some, some things that pop into my mind. Search your own heart. Talk to your, own, to your wife, your kids, your roommates. And come up with at least two or three questions. You can come up with more if you want. That would be water purity checks for yourself. And for your homework for next time, go through those questions. And uh, say, what do each of your answers here reflect about how well you've been guarding your heart? What practices do you need to maintain? Right where there's good here, what practices do you need to maintain? And what might need to change? To the degree to which you're doing a good job here, God gets the glory. Do that. Give him the glory. Don't be afraid to say, praise God. He's at work in me. There's some, there's some good answers here. And give God the glory. Praise him for it. Don't say, yippee, look how good I am. I, I'm guarding my heart. But say, God, you gave me this new heart and enabled me to guard it. Thank you for enabling this by your spirit in me. Say, praise God. But if you're anything like me, this list of questions reveals some sin, some areas of heart compromise. And what we have studied today shows that in our battle against these sins, you must go to the root. So confess that sin to God. Agree with Him that it is sin, and by His grace, guard your new heart. Apart from the grace of God, we are helpless to work at the heart level. But by God's grace, in the shadow of the cross, we diligently shepherd our hearts to God, away from sin. <clears throat> so what you must not do, and you will be tempted to do this, what you must not do when you see sin is to play leapfrog over your heart. Guarding your heart is not about behavior modification. <clears throat> Speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus describes the, heart pro the root problem. You outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He said... Water flowing through a poison, flowing from a poison-filled well, through nicely polished pipes to a fancy cup, is still poisonous. Don't clean the pipes; guard the wellspring. So, as you think on what you have learned today, remember that heart guarding is not behavior modification. This reminds me of the guy who who I knew over a decade ago. He, his life was, was plagued by pornography. He saw lust in his life, was keeping him from his wife, affecting his relationship with, with his friends, his church. He was mastered by pornography. He said, I need to make some significant changes the pornography revealed that his wellspring had not been guarded well. He resolved, I cannot tolerate internet in my house. He got rid of the internet for a year. He got rid of his TV for a year. And for a year, he said, I have not looked at pornography. After a year, 
let, turned the internet back on, brought the TV back into his house. You know what happened that night? Right back on it. His solution, although that, that may be a good solution, paired with heart shepherding, remove the temptation, do something drastic. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it out. If your, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better to enter heaven with, without a hand or an eye than to be thrown into hell with all your members. But if you do that and you don't, removing the sin, but if you don't replace it with pursuing God with all your heart, it's an outward behavior modification. That revealed something about the man's heart and the deficiency in heart guarding. And today, he's walked away from the faith. His family's in ruins. Just like Solomon, if you don't guard your heart, but merely pursue behavior modification, you're missing the point. It doesn't matter what the, you look like. It's what's within. Don't be content with behavior modification. Take aim at your heart. Paul David Tripp, and we're going to close with this. He said this in his excellent book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, which I commend you all to read. He said, if my heart is the source of the sin problem, then lasting change must always travel through the pathway of my heart. It is not enough to alter my behavior or to change my circumstances. Christ transforms people by radically changing their hearts. If the heart doesn't change, the person's words and behavior may change temporarily because of the external pressure or incentive, like the pain of discipline. But when the pressure or incentive is removed, the changes disappear. Not so when the changes come from the heart. Let us never be content with behavior modification, but in our pursuit of holiness, remember that God has already done the most important and amazing work in giving us new hearts. So men of Grace Bible Church, by the grace of God and the shadow of the cross, for the glory of God, let's guard these new hearts to God together. Let's pray and we'll go home. God, we, we thank you for the gospel that you did not leave us to our natural state where we could do nothing good. God, thank you for your saving work in the gospel where you declare us righteous and you make us righteous by changing us from the hearts. And God, we pray, we beg that that you would make us diligent starting right now, going home, in our conversation together, as soon as we get home with our family, you would make us diligent in everything above all else. It's our highest priority that we would guard these hearts because God, from them flow the springs of life. God, I pray that, I pray that you would give us diligence and wisdom to consider these questions and, and the truth of the gospel revealed to us this morning from your word. Thank you for getting us up this morning, for giving us new breath, for giving, making the sun rise. 
But most of all, God, thank you for giving us yourself. We love you, but only because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.